A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Boom, 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 the foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, that's actually going so. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? <laughs> Hello there and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. We're in studio. Well, it's a good start. Good place to be. Yeah, uh, Owen here with Murphy. You positioned yourself in front of the microphone. I'm always in front of the microphone, talking away. How are you, Owen? Uh, you good? Okay. Yeah, Sepp Blatter's in the news in a big way after giving a wide-ranging interview to a Russian news agency, TASS. I've seen the controversy that it's created. Best explained in this Daily Mail article. Yeah. You know the way the Mail put a headline and then a, a lo- rather than a interpreting the world for Owen McDevitt <laughs> yeah. one day to tell. <laughs> you know the way they put a big headline on there, and then rather than just a simple subheadline, as was the classic case in print mm-hmm. journalism, they uh, put a, basically the entire story in bullet points. You'll never believe what's the, what Sepp Blatter has said in this. Yeah, <laughs> that way you don't have to read all the boring stuff that he actually says. You can just read the bullet points, look at the pictures, and get on with your, the next thing in your busy lifestyle. Uh, a brave yeah. new world, yep. Owen, isn't it? So Sepp Blatter, where's the headline here? The one thing that Russia could not conceal was Sepp Blatter with his big mouth and despicable politics. And then the series of bullet points says... Sepp Blatter revealed Russia was picked for 2018 World Cup before vote. Banned FIFA president sparked further controversy over bidding process. Blatter's words nail his allies' lies that he was above FIFA's rottenness. This admission that votes were meaningless should be his fatal error. And this is the one that I really wanted to get to. David Cameron, Prince William and David Beckham wasted their time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That's the big one. Oh, no, Beckham is Busy wild. men. Well, I don't know how busy Prince William is. <laughs> the other two are pretty busy. I don't know. Is Prince William, does he have time? I'd say he's got a bit of time to waste. Think he's of all of the le- banquets that man could have been at. Yeah. There's a lot of things he could have been doing as opposed to schmoozing um, in Zurich or wherever it was. Yeah, Isn't I mean, Prince William... Prince William's the Welsh... Prince of Wales, yeah, it's Prince of Wales. Yeah. So there he is supporting know how many Wales. Describe him as well. Supporting Wales in the Rugby World Cup against his brother supporting England. Yeah. So what? He was probably the wrong man to send, looking after a bid for the English World Cup in the first place. He took him, took it down from the inside. Is that what you said for all of his? I Welsh don't want to listen. I mean, the yeah, I'm surprised. The royal family have their tentacles everywhere. I'm surprised, though, given your addiction to the Daily Mail, that you don't appear to know more about the royal family. <laughs> it's true. Um, I don't know how. What, what's the, how name one of the children? Welsh. Name what, one of the, what, what the Kate, Kate Middleton and uh, Prince Williams. Sons. Um, no. You can't They're be serious. You've you got to know at least the name of the older one. He's literally been in, he's on the front page of the Alex Ferguson's favourite newspaper, the Daily Express, one day and two. 
when it's it's either diabetes or this little fella. Or Princess Diana. Well, there's also, there's also sometimes uh, no, I can't remember. migrants. That's the other thing. Uh, George. <laughs> little George, Owen. I mean, again, I mean, I'm not going to bore you with my quiz techniques here. But <laughs> it's a pretty, it's, there's not a million names. You know, he's not going to be called, you know, Cameron or like Kieran. Zach or Kieran. <laughs> Prince Zach. Zach would be good though, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the next generation. Uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, you could probably could have guessed, George. But maybe we've, have we straight off the point? Yeah, let's get on the report yeah. on sport. I love yeah. the report on sport. Why it just applies they... some structure to an otherwise rather unstructured introduction to the programme. The, re- uh, the reason they were wasting their time, Owen, the reason that David Cameron, Prince William and David Beckham were wasting their time was that the whole thing was a fix. Sapladder had fixed it in such a way that it didn't work out the way that he fixed it. But that didn't change the fact that he was trying to fix it, at least according to him. <laughs> we only have Sapladder's own word for this. But this is what he has said in a very long interview uh, with Tass. And he obviously feels at home uh, with this the Russian um, wire service. Uh, they're like his Boswell. This is the longest interview I've ever seen him give by miles. Uh, and he, uh, and he it's, it's, it's a little bit bitter in tone. You know, the suspended president of FIFA speaks. Um, and he says, uh, the big crisis started May 26, 27 in Zurich when they arrested six members directly or indirectly involved in FIFA. It's funny to say they had a journalist at the hotel at six o'clock in the morning, an American journalist. Then there was a big tsunami in FIFA. <laughs> so uh, everybody says, who's responsible for that? That's the president. Blatter, he is responsible. But I object. How can I be responsible morally for all the people? Um, it's a good point that he makes. I actually, I think... I agree with him. It's true. It takes two to tango or 24 to tango in the case of the FIFA executive committee. Um, and each each one of those individuals who took bungs, you know, who, who did, who cut uh, dodgy deals, um, each one of them is, is individually accountable for what they did. However, the president also is. You know, the president, it's not like Bladder was responsible for all of this. But as the man who was overseeing the operation, he is just as guilty as any individual, and arguably more so. I mean, you can, you can make an argument that he, as the top man, is the most guilty. Yeah, his argument is, this has nothing even to do with FIFA, let alone me. These guys were up to something uh, over at CONCACAF and with the uh, CAB and all these. It's, it's, it's as though it's a different, uh, completely different jurisdiction or different uh, walk of life that he's talking mm. about when it's actually he, these people on his Yeah, he, he doesn't seem to subscribe to the idea that, that no man is an island. Every man is an island, and what he's doing on that island has nothing to do with me, no matter how closely affiliated to me or the organisation of which I'm a president. Yep. Uh, yep. Maybe. There's also nothing in this interview, as far as I can remember, um, about about um, Jack Warner, and I mean the fact that Bladder Bladder. One of the most damaging accusations against him is that he sold a TV contract to Jack Warner, um, the you know over in Concacaf for a fraction of what it was worth. Uh, thus, costing uh, f- costing FIFA money. You know what I mean. He that he was involved in the sale of this. Essentially, that's a way of passing money to Jack Warner. You sell something to him, which you know is worth much more than you know. Suddenly, he's able to sell it, and mm. the difference is the bung. Um, that wasn't brought up. I haven't seen any mention. Haven't seen any mention of that. There is plenty of talk though about Michel Platini. Um, the Russians ask. Could you tell me more about the contract with Platini, which caused your suspension? 
Um, this is the two million Swiss francs that was given by FIFA to Michel Platini in 2011 for work that was apparently done years earlier. He says, um, this is better now, when, he was, when Platini was chairman of the <clears throat> organising committee for the France World Cup, he told me at the end of the cup, I would like to work for you. And I said, this is great, because we all already worked with him. It was in 1998. And then he said that I am very expensive. I said, okay. So he said, I am worth one million a year. I said, I cannot pay this. It's impossible. And he said, okay, then pay me later. So we have made some contract where he got some money, but not one million. He was working until he was elected in 2002 to FIFA Executive Committee and UEFA Executive Committee. He stopped his working contract then because he was then an official of FIFA. He never touched this item. I came back for his money until 2010. In 2010, he approached the financial director of FIFA by saying, hey, listen, FIFA owes us money. I was informed and said, OK, let him make an invoice of this, what we owe him. He said, we owe him two million Swiss francs. And I analyzed this and said, OK, it's a contract we have made. It's a principle I have that if you owe money to somebody, you pay it. Mm -hmm. then a bladder, we paid it. A bladder always pays his debts. Yeah. Yeah, a bladder always pays his debts. This money was not paid for any other reason. This is what, this is what uh, he, he says. Basically, uh, so that's his explanation. Patini has actually done an interview today in which he continues to insist he's the right man for the uh, job. We'll get to Patini in a second, actually. Bladder explains where their relationship fell apart. And it seems as though a personal insult was at the root of the... Isn't of, it always? Well, this is... this is Okay, let's just say UEFA Euro 2008. Can you remember which countries that was? That yeah, was it was in Austria and Switzerland. Austria and Switzerland. Where is Seb Bladder from? He's Swiss. He is from Switzerland. He's from Valais, uh, a canton in the mountains. I'm better at this game than the royal family mm. trivia. <laughs> you're, you're in much safer ground now, old. It's fine. This is what, um, he, this is another thing he was complaining about. He said, oh, you know, the snobbery of the Swiss, the Swiss media, they've had it in for me from the start, you know, because I come from Valais. And they say the people up there eat with their fingers. You know, we're all mountain monkeys up there, is like basically what he says. I don't know if, if he's... If Sepp, I don't know what Sepp Platter's, you know, if is he a kind of a Jackie Healy Ray figure in, in Switzerland? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not really sure. Uh, but he certainly seems to think as though, or he seems to believe that the snobby mainstream media in Switzerland has has um, mocked him as like being a kind of bumpkin from the mountains. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he, he says, uh, so there are European championships in Switzerland and Austria. Sepp Platter, president of FIFA, where w would you imagine... He's expecting to sit at the match. Well, where see where the trophy is? <laughs> Just like beside that. Definitely, he's within he five yards of the, the trophy in the front row. You know what I mean? Patini, I guess he's a, he's running UEFA. He'll probably have to be there. The presidents of the respective countries, but obviously, bladder in the front row as well. Yeah, man, yeah. One year later, in the 2008 European Championship, I was sidelined by UEFA. Looking at this ticket, restricted view, <laughs> and restricted <laughs> view. What does this mean? And since then, I never went to UEFA competitions because it's non-respect, not to me as a person, but to the office and the people I represent. <laughs> but what does he mean by sideline? Was he, he was just giving back? Second basically, role back. he was like, "Oh, Sep, yeah, sorry, you don't actually have any role with this." Oh, but what do you mean? I'm surely I can present a trophy and maybe hand out some medals. No, Sep. This has got nothing to do with you. But this is this is my home, European Championship. You're part Seb, of the you've football got, family. You've got nothing to do with this. Um, UEFA is affected by an anti-FIFA virus for years. They have an anti-FIFA virus. So he, he has a go at uh, Patini. The the most interesting thing, I mean, he says loads of things, which are some of them are a bit crazy, whatever. 
Um, but the, the most interesting bit comes when they say, do you think it was a mistake to simultaneously hold the elections of both 2018 and 2022 World Cups in 2010? And Blattery says, in 2010, we had a discussion of the World Cup and then we went to a double decision. For the World Cups, it was agreed that we go to Russia because it's never been in Russia, Eastern Europe. And for 2022, we go back to America. And so we will have the World Cup in the two biggest political powers. And everything was good. Until the moment when Sarkozy came in a meeting with the Crown Prince of Qatar, who is now the ruler of Qatar. That's a Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani. And at a lunch afterwards with Mr. Platini, he said it would be good to go to Qatar. And this, uh, and this has changed all pattern, is what it says here. There was an election by secret ballot. Four votes from Europe went away from the USA, and so the result was 14 to 8. If you put the four votes, it would have been 12 to 10. Basically, if the, those four votes had gone to the USA as they were meant to. If the USA was given the World Cup, we would only speak about the wonderful World Cup 2018 in Russia, and we would not speak about any problems at FIFA. So that's, you know, he's basically saying, number one, it, it was all organized to go first to America, then to mm. Russia. If it had, we wouldn't have any of these issues. The Americans certainly wouldn't be kicking up kicking up a fuss over it. And the reason that this hasn't happened, Mr. Patini, and that dinner between the French uh, French president and the um, Qatari uh, crown prince. But I love how unshakable his confidence seems to have been in the, in the idea that a decision was made before... Before well, everyone came over for the for the for the vote. Of course, twelve ten. You know, it was it was in the bag. Yeah, twelve ten, and then unfortunately, certain dinners took place. That's a bit of a bombshell, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, the the idea that that the that the FIFA president would take such an interest in shaping the outcome of these supposedly um, open tenders. You know, it's supposed to be an open, competitive, transparent process, and in fact, you've got the FIFA president on the inside trying to queer the pitch. You know, well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, 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 it's not uh, unheard of in the world of politics or anything that you go into a meeting with a lot of people knowing the result of the meeting before the vote has happened. It's true, but should, like, should like he, that's just the way of that's the way of meetings. Should, I mean, why are they doing? I, I don't understand why they have why they have a, pro, a bid process like this. Why isn't it just? Why don't they just decide among themselves? Because it's it's just. Uh, it seems to me that you're inviting a lot of people to waste a lot of time and money. Yeah. In order to glorify, for the greater glory of FIFA. Essentially, you get flown around to all these different countries. You know, oh, we're going to Japan. We're going to be, like, pampered by the Japanese for a couple of weeks while they show us around. Oh, then we're going to Australia. Then we're going to, you know, the United States. Then it's, you know, Holland, Belgium. Then it's England. <laughs> you know, you want to see the gift bags we have from the English bid. Really, not quite up to scratch, frankly. You know, and this is, like, this is what they're doing. And why, why is this taking place? It should reason, be happening. Yeah, if the reason why you're going to Russia is because we haven't held it in Eastern Europe or Russia before. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, well, you know, the, the bid process is, you know, unless England can move to Eastern Europe, then, you know, the bid process is pretty much screwed right from the start. But yeah. it's a fact that uh, you're dead right. I'm, I shouldn't, I'm, when I say bombshell, it's not that I'm surprised. There's almost nothing that you can hear from FIFA oh, that would actually surprise you. Yeah. But it, it's just, you would expect to maybe hear a reporter digging out this story. Apparently Bladder had mm. agreed this in advance and it was all it was all done. This is Bladder for no particular reason blurting all this stuff out in an interview. It's it's, it's more the fact of him saying it I think that oh, I'm finding yeah. slightly hard to get mad Oh, around. obviously, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the idea that you have a vote and that it's uh, preordained beforehand. Except Bladder telling the truth is surprising me. That's yes, what I'm that's, saying. Yeah. There's just one other thing I want to mention from this interview. Uh, uh, they asked, when did you visit Russia for the first time? 
He says, my first time when I visited Russia was in 1973. There was the Universiad in Moscow. Later on, I came to the Olympics in 1980. We were received in the Kremlin by Mr. Brezhnev. We had the impression that he was moving on roller skates. <laughs> Brezhnev just gliding so gracefully. Or maybe actually being wheeled around like a stuffed bear. You know, on a, on a small trolley. Weekend at birdie style. Later on, we had the youth competition in 1985 when Mr. Gorbachev came in and it was forbidden to drink alcohol before noon. I have very good <laughs> memories of Russia. <laughs> so, I don't know if this interview took place at about, you know, half two in the afternoon. Mm. But uh, one way or the other. But, but he's not the only person giving interviews. Platini's done interviews as well. His interview is kind of boring. All he's saying is, oh, there was nothing wrong with that payment. I paid tax on it. Didn't I pay my national insurance on it? What's your problem? What's your problem? You know, most, if you get a corrupt payment, do you pay national insurance and tax? Well, possibly Yes. I don't know, there is an argument that you try to make it look as possibly, clean as possible. Yes, if, you, if you want to make it look like a legitimate payment, sure, I do. If, yeah, if, if, if that's you the get price of laundering payment, the money. Yeah, if you get a corrupt payment of two million quid and you pay tax on it, you're still getting a hefty amount of that money, which is your corrupt payment. So. Well, he, he, you know, so it's, that's what he said. He also says he's still the best person to run world football, which is, but he has, a, he has an analogy. He says, even if I cannot go out campaigning, I fully consider myself a candidate. Today, I have the sense of being a knight from the Middle Ages in front of a castle. I'm trying to get in to bring football back, but instead I'm having boiling oil poured on my head. <laughs> so, yeah, there, there you go. Poetic. Clear as, as, as anything from uh, Michel Thankfully, Ken, mm-hmm. the football world has Paul Scholes to do all the straight talking that we can handle. To cut through, cut through <laughs> the nonsense. And uh, you look at the under-16s, under-17s, it's absolutely riddled with foreign players, says Paul Scholes. Riddled with. Riddled with foreigners. <laughs> what an evocative phrase. <laughs> what, are, what are the things riddled? You can riddle with bullets, you can be riddled with like... Um, Disease. Yeah, it's sort of decaying, you yeah. know, decay. Anyway, he, uh, he, he was... Paul Scholes has been probably the loudest critic of Louis van Gaal over the time that he's been in the job. He, honestly, he's had a few big pops at him, I think. Yeah. More so than... And, and considering the weight that his words carry... I mean, the thing is that, like, the way fans are... This is going to make Paul Scholes unpopular with a lot of Manchester United fans. You know, they're like, oh, shut up, Scholes. Louis van Gaal's doing a great job. You know, why can't you shut your mouth? Uh, you know, why are you, why have you turned into, a, you know, such a blowhard, Scholes? Why, why are you always on my TV taking money to slag off Manchester United, right? <laughs> how, how far are we away from that moment when, anyway, Scholes says, the style isn't something that Alex Ferguson would have adhered to. I actually think the team is brilliantly coached to defend. I think the hardest thing to do is to coach scoring goals, creativity, and to have players who are off the cuff. It's a team you wouldn't want to play against, and it's probably a team you wouldn't want to play in either. There's a lack of risk and creativity. It seems he doesn't want players to beat men and score goals. It's not a team I would have enjoyed playing in. Um, Harsh enough. But he talked then about Rooney. I mean, Rooney's nightmare continues. Um, Yeah, I thought the Rooney stuff was interesting. mm. it's It's all pretty interesting. Well, he says... He says, I was at the Manchester Derby and I watched Rooney for the first 20 minutes. His movement was brilliant, but when he's playing in that team, there's nobody prepared to pass him. You'd be tearing your hair out. Rude van Nistelrooy, Teddy Sheringham, and Andy Cole. They couldn't play in this team. You don't get crossed in the box. Midfielders looking for runs. I think it's a very difficult team to be a centre forward in. <sighs> Come on. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> having this. Anthony Martial's doing a pretty good job yeah. when they give him the task of playing there. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not having this. You know... It's a very difficult team. Why is it? Are we are we saying that Louis van Gaal, like a, I mean, if you look at Louis van Gaal's history, 
it's not as though the centre forward is always some sacrificial figure who whose job is simply to act as a kind of decoy or, you know, uh, just to, to run around and open up space. They score plenty of goals as well. You know, I mean, I was looking back through his history. I mean, he had he had uh, Patrick Kluivert and Canu scoring a lot of goals for Ajax. I mean, when I say a lot of goals, I mean a goal every two games. Uh, you know, that kind, that kind of thing. You know, what used to be considered prolific before, you know, Messi and Ronaldo kind of upped it. Um, at Barcelona, again, Patrick Kluivert scoring a little over one and two. Um, for uh, Holland when he was the Dutch manager, Ruud van Nistelrooy scored six goals in the qualifiers for the 2002 World Cups. World Cup, you know, that's a decent return. Yeah, for ten matches. But is the argument here, and Skulls does touch on this, that Van Hal hasn't got to that stage of evolution with this Manchester United team yet, and maybe never will. That he that he's not that he's he's got the defensive side of it sorted, but he actually. Those teams you talk about, particularly the Ajax team, is just so full of energy and running that mm. they could play possession, they could do play any kind of game really, and you're still going to service the striker. Whereas they just don't have that transition between defence and attack sorted, and therefore Rooney is getting isolated. Well, look, I mean, he, uh, I'm sure that there is something to this. You know, obviously it suited Rooney. Rooney scored a lot more goals. So the you know his best scoring season. I mean, there's two. I think when he scored the same number in 2010, 2012, but 2010 was maybe the more impressive one. Uh, he won Football of the Year that year. And that was the year he, he was scoring all the goals, all the headers, you know, mm. going around slapping his then bald head. And yeah, that's uh, the issue. Nutting in all these crosses and was very prolific. And obviously that team was set up in such a way as to create m- much more chances for him from closer in. And, you know, he was scoring a lot. But do you think Rooney would, this Rooney would score that many goals in a team that played that way now? I don't think so. I don't think he's, I don't really think he's got it anymore. I, I think Skulls is making excuses for a guy who, he played with for many years and has a, you know, I would say a lot of respect for. I mean, Rooney was a great player, but I mean, this Rooney is not, is not cutting it. I mean, I don't understand why Louis van Gaal would deliberately design a system to make his centre-forward look bad. He's never done it before. No, but that's my point, that maybe he, it's not a t- deliberate part of the plan, but it's just the gap in, you know, you're, you're judging van Gaal historically, but we're talking about van Gaal now, van Gaal at Manchester United. Yeah. And he hasn't created any sort of uh, consistent, fluent attacking play. Well, you know, maybe that's maybe that's got something to do with the players he's got. Yeah, I think. I mean, I just think that his his form personally is bad. You know, when you see him miscontrolling the ball, when you see him like punting long passes just to nobody, what do you think? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. When you when you see this, you know, he, he he's you're looking at him going, okay, this is not what whatever about the way this team is set up. This is not this is not good enough. You know, because we've seen him play a lot better than this. Can he still do that? He'd want to start doing it again because that's the reason that he became this legendary player at Manchester United, not playing the way that he is now. All right. uh, there's no point blaming the uh, the system for that. That's the end of Ken Early's report on sport. FIFA made a movie recently. Did they? John Delaney could run anything. They did, they did. About themselves? Yeah, about themselves. God, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Sam Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible ego, but the real movie's on its way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself. And I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you, with one or two expletives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, what I do. And that was it, with one or two expletives. And I just asked him to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here to tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds, and I said, move on now, please. And then he moved.
when I went in and told them how I felt about them, yeah. there were some expletive used, we came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement for FBI. And you've used the bigger there. Well done to you. Gabriele Marcotti is ready to talk to us, Gabriele, about these bombshells that seem to be being dropped by uh, Sepp Blatter in this interview to a Russian news agency. Well, we've been talking about this quite a lot already. What I was struck by was the casual nature of the way he was just letting these things, the, these bombs, drop in the middle of conversation. What do you think of it? Well, actually, I'm kind of curious about this. What bombshell are you referring to? Well, in particular, the uh, pre-agreed decision to give the World Cup to Russia. And, in, and, and, the, United and the United States. And the following ones of the United States before actually any of this going to a vote. Okay, so I think this is sometimes we in the media, we get a little bit carried away with what seems like a great story. Let me take a step back. Let me chuck this back and chuck this at you guys. Right. Who was the agreement between... But well, well, we don't know. He's well, just saying we. Yeah, he, he said in 2010, we had a discussion of the World Cup and then we went to a double decision. The we would seem there to, I mean, I would suggest, although he didn't say, that he's referring to the FIFA Executive Committee because they're, they're the ones who made the decision. Okay. All right. So, so well, it, well, first of all, it's, it's kind of funny because if you read Tass, like who, who wrote the story, if you read the transcript of their interview, that's what it says. If you listen to the audio that Richard Conway of the BBC put out, uh, which he presumably got from the task people, he simply says, in the group, or he says something like, we in the group decided. But you still don't know who the, who the heck he's talking about, which, by the way, I think is, is a terrible interviewing by the task people, because you would have thought it's a natural follow-up question. Well, we kind of we kind of do know that, he, that he's talking about, because... He starts talking about the votes, and he's clearly talking about the votes in the FIFA executive committee. I mean, he, you know, he's saying he's saying we did this, we went, we went to a double, okay. a double decision. It's, it was their decision, and then he says there was an election by secret ballot, and talks about how the votes switched around. And so he's talking about the executive committee. Yeah, I wouldn't. So, so let me put it this way. I, I mean, I have no idea what he's talking about. I, I actually thought that he's talking about we. He's talking about him going to put him and Platini, um, actually, um, but. Here's what doesn't add up, right? So you're saying the FIFA Executive Committee all agree this, right? Go back and look to see who's on there. You have, just regarding 2018, you have Jeff Thompson, who's the actual head of the freaking England 2018 bid, right? Mm. Supposedly, so he's on this committee. He agrees that actually, no, we're all going to back Russia. You have Angel Maria Villar from Spain, who, you know, there's obviously a Spain-Portugal bid. And you have Michel Dogue from uh, Belgium, and there happens to be a Belgium-Holland bid. Are we saying, I mean, is he implying that the entire FIFA executive committee, including these people who are representing and being paid and working for uh, you know, rival countries' bid committees, all agreed with this? Maybe. I mean, that would be, right. that'd be pretty interesting. No, I, I, I think he's deliberately, I mean, I think either he's talking out of his backside, uh, which wouldn't be the first time, or... He's deliberately muddying the waters here. To me, the most plausible explanation is that when he said, like, we agreed is actually that he went to Platini and, and UEFA nations, presumably the ones who were free to vote for whoever they wanted to. In other words, not, you know, not Russia, Belgium, uh, Spain and, and England and said, guys, I want Russia 2018. It's going to be in Europe. Let's make it Russia. And then U.S. 2022. And then he probably would have added he wants China 2026, which we've all kind of known for some time. 
I think he went and he said, this is what, this is what I, I want. This is what, you know, I think we should back. And they said, yes, uh, sure. Sounds great. Um, but I don't think they sat there and they all committed to doing things this way. And I think the evidence of that, you know, lies in the fact that on 2022, that's not what happened, right? They ended up not going with what Blatcher wanted, wanted but they ended up going with, uh, with Cutter. Yeah, it's interesting though, Blatter. I mean, there's a line here from Martin Samuel in the Daily Mail today. It says, Blatter's allies have tried to portray him as an honest man, unfortunately surrounded by rogues. Just about everyone he appointed or sat beside turned out to be crooked, but he was supposed to be above it all. Uh, he is as disturbed by FIFA's rottenness as you. Samuel says this is the idea that his allies put out there. But as Samuel says, Blatter's own words nail that lie. Whatever was going down, he was at the heart of it. What do you think of that? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, first of all, I mean, I, I agree with what, what Sammy's saying fundamentally that this idea that you know he he was just sort of some some island of, of holiness and, and and forthrightness among all the sea of corruption, I, I think is just is just stupid. I mean, I think at the very least, you know, he is somebody who who looked away when there were when there was corruption uh, uh, around him. and perhaps in return of these corrupt people then backing him and keeping him in power and perhaps allowing some of the, the thieving to continue. Certainly that's the impression you get with the likes of Jack Warner and Chuck Blazer and whatnot over the years. Um, however, I don't see how you can draw this, conc- this whole conclusion that you know, everything was, was fixed beforehand based on, this, you know, based on this, this conversation, the disagreement that he had. Uh, well, yeah, well I, mean, I mean, okay, Seth Blatter was the president of this organization, and they were, uh, they were, they had put out this, you know, apparently open tender to invite people to spend a ton of money putting together a World Cup bid and flying their guys in and putting them up in nice hotels and and telling them about all the amazing things that would be put in place. But Seth Blatter was actively working behind the scenes to subvert this process. I mean, he was he was actively working to. I mean, he should he should have been above that. As the president of the organization that's invited these bids, he should be there saying, well, interesting to see all these bids going through. Instead, he's actively working to affect the outcome. I mean, if, if people knew that before, uh, you know, entering these bids, maybe, you know, some of them wouldn't have, would have decided not to, uh, not to go ahead with the process. Well, but, but, but Ken, if that was the case, then um, first of all, it's simply not, not true that, you know, the, the president can't have an opinion. He has a vote. It's not like he's, he's some kind of judge. He has a vote. He has an opinion, can... but like, he's not suppo- I don't think he's supposed to try to actually get his hands dirty in the, in the process and affect uh, what way it's going to go. I mean, why can't, if, if he's inviting open bids, why, why can't he just sit back and watch that process take its natural outcome? I don't, I don't understand why he takes such an activist role. If he wants to appoint the country that hosts the World Cup, why doesn't he just do that? He's the president of FIFA. I don't understand why they've done it this way if it's just a question of Blatter saying, you know, okay, well, I think it should go to Russia in 2018 and then America 2022. Well, because they have a committee of 25 people, um, or 24 people, rather, uh, which then, of course, get, got whittled down because uh, two of the guys... Uh, thought it would be a funny idea to go and sell their vote to the highest bidder, which is, which is a whole other issue. At least two guys, of course, that we know of. Um, but the way that this is done is they sit in a room. They just, I mean, the way theoretically it's done is they sit in a room. They discuss the merits of of each bid. Um, they lobby for for whoever they want, and then they go and they vote on it. I mean, there are other members of the executive committee. I mean, do you think Jeff Thompson should have kept an open mind and not gotten himself involved and, 
and not backed England, you know, from day one. I mean, it, it, you know, it, <laughs> that's not the way it works. You, 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 you go in and you have an idea of, of who you want and, you know. Yeah, but you don't agree it in advance, which is what Sepp Blatter is saying he has done, uh, thereby wasting everybody else's time and money coming over and, and just setting out and, and you know, setting out sort of something that is, is preordained. Well, first of all, we don't know. He just says that this happened in 2010, right? Mm. So the vote was on December 2nd, 2010, I believe. Yeah. Um, and we don't know at what point in, in, in 2010 uh, they went and they decided this. But, you know, the bidding process has obviously started a long time before that. So by the time 2010 rolled around, you know, you, 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 you kind of knew what each country had to offer. The bid books were in. The, uh, you know, you, you, you could have an idea of, of what it, you know, of, of, of which, which, uh, which country you wanted. But what I just think it's interesting. Everybody kind of jumps on this and says like, oh, you know, because Blacker says so now, you know, after years of not believing anything he says, now he says this and we're going to sit there and we're going to really believe this. And we're not going to bother following up and asking him and say like, saying like, you know, oh, it was agreed. Well, sorry, when was it agreed? And agreed by who? And God, listen, if Ken, if it is what you say, if it is the, if the executive committee, you know, all 24 members sat and agreed, oh, let's go Russia and then, uh, and, and, and then the U.S., then the first thing you do is you go visit Mr. Jeff Thompson, Mr. Michel Doug, and Mr. Angel Maria Villar and say, I'm sorry, what the hell were you guys doing? You know, weren't you fighting your corner for, for your countries, for, for the bids that you represented? I mean, that's why I think it's, it, it's an absurdity. I mean, are we to believe that the executive committee agreed this and Jeff Thompson, who was a FIFA vice president at the well, time... Well, you, you could do it with a block in the executive committee. I mean, Blatter is kind of looking at the English guy and he goes, well, no, nobody's talked to Jeff Thompson since he came into this building, you know, however many years ago. I mean, nobody, nobody wanted England. He, I, think he says it, <laughs> I think he says that at one point. That's actually a lie from Blatter. No one wanted England. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have to involve Jeff Thompson, but it's clear that Platini, I mean, uh, that, that's the other person I wanted to ask you about here. Gabriel. I mean, it's clear that he was involved because Blatter talks about his, you know, four votes kind of controlled by a Platini block changing sides after, the, um, after President Sarkozy had dinner with the Crown Prince of Qatar. Um, I mean, the, the reason that I think, you, you know, for instance, you were just saying, Oh, why believe what Blatter's saying now when you haven't believed anything that he said, you know, in the whole previous course of his life? And the answer is because Blatter is now on his way out and dishing the dirt and digging up all the digging up all the bodies, uh, you know, that he knows are scattered over this uh, over this battlefield. You know, when he he is he's clearly out to get Michel Platini for one thing. So I kind of think that maybe some of these things that he's saying are at this stage true. Yeah, I, I think if you were ditching the dirt properly. He would he would put dates and names to it. You know, he would say when that meeting was in in 2010. Because obviously, if they had this meeting in 2010 on on November 20th, which is the day that they banned uh, Amos Adamu and uh, Reynald Tawari, then it doesn't really matter because by that point they they'd all seen the bids and everything, and it was part of the negotiation for who they were going to vote for. If they had this meeting on you know in January 2010, it would be a different issue. And again, it's highly relevant, I think who he's talking about when he says we. Regarding Puccini and his four votes, the stuff that doesn't quite um, add up to me, and, and, and we need to also note that we know that Puccini voted for Qatar 
because unlike the vast majority of Exco members, he came out and he said who he voted for, and, and we believed him. And we know about this meeting with with Sarkozy because he said that he was there, and uh, and he said that they asked him to support Qatar, and and then he, I think, rather <laughs> foolishly said, um, well, I ended up supporting them, but not because they asked me, which you, know, you can draw your own conclusions on that one. But what gets me is it's a freaking secret ballot, right? How does Blatter know how, what votes went with Putini, uh, what votes he took with him when he voted for Qatar, which ones he didn't? Um, and also, how did he know that Amos Adanu and, and Reynold Tawari, the two guys who were suspended, how does he know that they wouldn't have sold, since they were happy to, to sell their votes, how did he know that they weren't going to sell their votes to Qatar? You know, it, it, it's this whole thing that doesn't quite that doesn't quite add up. I mean, was Blatter lobbying hard for the U.S.? Yes, he was. Uh, we know he was. Uh, the U.S. bid people certainly believe he was. But I think what this shows is that he's not omnipotent and that, you know, the Qataris, <laughs> whichever way they did it, uh, managed to get enough people, enough people on their side. All right, Gabrielli Brunson, thank you. No problem. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent. All right, well, that's why I like talking to Gabriele Marcotti. You can generally rely on Gab not to go along necessarily with the party line, or not so much the party line, but the way everyone else is reacting to something. And he feels, Ken, well, you know, what's the big deal here? Like, why is everyone getting all head up about this? Blatter, it's Seth Blatter talking here, and he seems to be talking through his, you know what? Well, it is, I mean, I just think it is a big story. The, the president of this organization is, you know, in a nonchalant manner, uh, Revealing that it was run in a way which it wasn't supposed to be run in. I mean, that's that appears to be what Blatter's saying, which I think is a noteworthy. That's a noteworthy event. You know, I mean, uh, maybe Blatter is just making all this stuff up. But I don't even think that's kind of interesting as well, if that is the case. But listen, we haven't talked to Sid Lowe in quite a number of weeks at this stage. So let's catch up with him, Sid. Great to chat to you again. Uh, we want to talk about. We'll talk about Ronaldo actually in a couple of minutes. But first of all, Rafa Benitez is. Making this strange impact at Real Madrid on his return there as manager. They're top of the league, top scorers. They've got this incredibly tight defensive system, which has been the most noteworthy aspect of their uh, their season so far. I think three goals have conceded in 12 games. What's not to like? <laughs> well, I think you've just said it. Um, a tight defensive system. And this has been, I must admit, I, I find this whole thing a bit bizarre. There's been this kind of constant obsession in almost every press conference to ask Rafa Benitez if he's defensive. And um, if you'll pardon the pun and the inevitable conclusion to this is that Rafa Benitez then goes on the defensive. Um, it, it's, I, I don't really understand the obsession with trying to ask him if he's defensive. I don't honestly understand the obsession that he seems to have too with responding, but he's not. Uh, he's yeah, why is he, why is he getting riled up about it? Surely he could just say, I look. Mean, well, I mean, uh, there was a really nice um, column written here by, by Filippo Ricci, who's the, the Gazeta de Sports correspondent in, in Madrid. And maybe, maybe his... Uh, you know, maybe his Italian passport speaks a little bit, but he he made a very good point, I thought, which 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 is worth stressing. Which is, why doesn't Rafa just say, "Yeah, my teams are really strong defensively. How do you like them apples?" And I don't really understand why why he doesn't. The other thing, for what it's worth, is to kind of unpack all of this. 
I actually think the statistics uh, are a bit of a miss. Um, Real Madrid have been have got a very good defensive record, but I think what they've largely had this season is a very good goalkeeper who's enabled them to to keep that that defensive record, has enabled them to look stronger statistically than they really are. Um, but then it's worth engaging as well with the other part of Rafa's argument, which is this is also a team that in in the Spanish league at the moment has scored more goals than anyone else too. Yeah, I mean, you can score. They've got good players who who can score a lot of goals in the counter attack. I mean, I think everyone. Everyone can see that. I mean, I always think the problem with Benitez, um, or the problem people have with Benitez, they say it's to do with the football, but it's actually to do with him. Like, I think you're right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's his image that they don't like, and then they complain, oh... What about his image? What's wrong with his image? Well, for instance, remember, Benitez is one of the few people I can think of, um, one of the few managers who was consistently abused by rival supporters in England for being fat. Mm. And, and, I mean, I remember Bene- uh, Mourinho... At the start of the season, remember what what he said? Oh, you know, his wife, wife needs to look him. after yeah, his yeah. diet. You know what I mean? This is a kind of a like that's. Well, I mean, and Ken, I think I mean you know you say he's the only manager that's that's, that's riled for being fat. I mean, you don't hear fans chanting you know to, to Sam Allardyce he's just a fat English butcher. You don't you mm. don't get you don't you don't get that. I mean, I, I think possibly the the fact that he's foreign may play a part in that, even if only subconsciously. I think that might almost make it easier to to, to pick up on that. I don't know. Um, I, I think the image thing with, with Benitez, and this is certainly something I think that's actually true in Spain going back a very long time. Uh, you know, it's not just about him being at Real Madrid. I think there is that sense that he's not especially charismatic, that he's not especially warm when you, when you hear him talk. And yet the weird thing is, actually, he's been quite interesting this season. He's been analytical in his answers. He's been quite clear with some of his responses. The only time I think where he's been kind of... Tetchy has been when he's been accused of being defensive. And the, the, other, the other big obsession was earlier in the season when people kept asking if Ronaldo was the best player he'd ever, he'd ever coached. And there was this obsession with getting him to say that Ronaldo was great based on the fact that to start with, he didn't say it. And, and it was as if he hadn't read the, un, you know, the, the, the rule book of being a Real Madrid manager. At every available opportunity, tell everyone that Ronaldo is better than Messi and better than everyone else and the best player you've ever seen. And he didn't. And he was kind of forced into a corner and forced to do so. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's partly about that warmth. I also think that if you go back to his period when he was at Valencia, there was a, a, a bit of a rejection in some of the Spanish media of him then. And I must admit, I've been forced to reevaluate that a little bit because my assumption then was basically the rejection was that he was the manager of Valencia beating Real Madrid's Galacticos yeah. and that there was a bit of bitterness towards him. But now he's at Real Madrid. Either there's a hangover from that or perhaps that analysis was, was incomplete back then. Yeah. Uh, what I always, what I wondered actually is now that he's gone back home, uh, how is... How how does he come? I mean, oh, okay. When he was in England or in Italy, he was always a foreigner. You know, he he's mm. got like a, an accent. Uh, he's got a reduced vocabulary. Everybody kind of knew Benitez's style, but like it, it's it's a little bit impenetrable. You know what I mean? Like uh, mm. the the sort of public persona. It's it's kind of like you don't really. Uh, you just hear a Spanish accent. You don't really hear. You know, a, a Spanish speaker can tell a lot more. Uh, from listening to somebody you know speak Spanish, then you know a foreigner listening to a guy with a Spanish accent—it's just a Spanish guy. In, in but in Madrid the, or in Spain, uh, the idea that people have of him must be a lot more kind of nuanced. I mean, I suppose it's difficult to to get to what I'm trying to ask you here. But what 
you know, what, how does his persona come across? I mean, if you, for instance, could compare him to someone in English football who's kind of a similar type of figure, maybe there isn't anybody. But, who, you know, do, do you get what I'm trying to say here? I'm kind yeah, of all I over do, the place. I do. And I think, I think the two things, I mean, you know, I know we're slightly contradicting ourselves and kind of going around in circles here. I think the two things do go together, together a little bit in that there is a sense that the personality is an extension of the football manager. Uh, all the more so with Rafa, because I think one of the... the, the Kind of one of the ways that he, we we look at him is this is a guy whose personality is the football manager that there isn't there isn't a kind of there isn't a human element beyond that 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 we see him as as that kind of studious tactician perhaps a little bit dry perhaps a little bit dull perhaps a little bit relentless um, and yet as I say I think his his answers are interesting and we we, we complain constantly in Spain oh you know football managers won't talk to us about football but when Rafa Benitez does it everyone kind of weighs in on him. And, and, and they feel like they're, they're bored about it. I think the, the other thing is that, you know, this is, in, this is reflected in England, and I think it, it, it will probably over time come to be reflected here in, in Spain at Real Madrid, and certainly was true at Valencia, that there are players who found him hard work because he didn't necessarily have the, if you like, the, the, the ability to relate to them, to use the, that horrible cliche, to put his arm around a player's shoulder, to make them feel wanted, to make them feel important. Because Rafa Benitez has a very, very sort of direct, um, no-frills approach to managing. We are professionals. We work. This is what we do. And all that other stuff is kind of peripheral nonsense. And yet, of course, a lot of players, and I think some people in the media, feel the need for some of what he would probably consider peripheral nonsense. So when you, look, when you ask kind of what's he seen like in Spain, I think he's seen as being a little bit distant, perhaps a little bit dry, um, perhaps not particularly exciting or charismatic. Now, all of these things I think are possibly a little bit unfair but they they build into that persona because of course if he had that same persona and his teams played kind of fantasy football and it was free-flowing maybe we'd reevaluate the persona equally if his teams played this way but he was charismatic in terms of charis- the kind of charismatic qualities if you would say a i don't know a Klopp, for example or or, or a pep guardiola maybe we would reevaluate the way the team played so i think the two things kind of condition each other to some extent Sid, you mentioned Ronaldo there and uh, his movie is coming out November 9th. I presume you're counting down the days. It's uh, astonishing, intimate and definitive according to the trailer. i, I got to be honest, the trailer's a couple of minutes long and it does make me want to watch the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, yeah. I want to watch it because, because I, think one, I think what will be interesting in this, uh, and, and forgive me for saying something that sounds bleeding obvious, but I think what will be interesting in, in this will be the portrayal of him. And while that sounds obvious, that's the, the case of any film. I think particularly in this case because this is Ronaldo's film. So in other words, the portrayal of him that we're given, what, will, what I think will be interesting about it will be, this is what he wants us to see. Yeah. This is the portrayal he is trying to express. And so it will be interesting to see, does he try and break with that image we have of him now? Does he try and reinforce it? Which elements of his personality does he want us to see? Now, it may well be that in a way he wants us to see all of his personality, and this is a true vision of, of, of him. But I think what will be interesting is, this is what he wants us to know about. And to give one very small little detail of this which i think is potentially significant but let's see the film and let's see if it really is and 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 maybe we're guilty of reading too much into this but you will of course remember the european cup final which real madrid won against atletico madrid cristiano ronaldo scores the least significant goal of all the goals scored in that final (laughs) he scores a penalty and he whips off his shirt as the strong man pose and it's it's a real it's a moment of this is my moment. Yeah, it was now, jar it was I, jarring at the time. It it, it, it was, was like, come on, Ralph, put your shirt It back really up. was jarring at the time. Now I've always been someone who basically defends players responding any way they want because yeah, it's a European Cup final and you scored and that's a big bloody deal. And frankly, if I scored in the European Cup final, it wouldn't matter if it was a tenth goal and a ten nil. <laughs> I think I'd go pretty bonkers too. 
admittedly, I probably wouldn't take my shirt off, but then that's for everyone else's sake. Now, and, and that, as you say, that moment jarred. Now, what's emerged in the last couple of weeks talking about the build-up to this film is that there may well be a reason why he did that, and that was because he knew that the cameras were on him for this film. And that, that, that if you like, it wasn't just that he was celebrating his moment, it was that he wanted to create the image that reinforced this final as his moment on the film that he knew was coming up. Now, all of that may be reading a little too much into it. It may be a little bit too harsh. But well, I remember, but I remember actually hearing that, that this was part of part of that. I remember um, hearing so, hearing something to that effect at the time, Sid. I, I mean, people were maybe it was just rumor. People kind of talking about that or, or speculating uh, about something like that. I think that was. Uh, People were definitely saying that at the time. Yeah. It is kind of interesting that he would do uh, that. <laughs> almost everything he's maybe been doing for the last two years has been for the benefit of like posterity, you know, in the form of this yeah. movie. I must admit, I don't know about you, but I, I think that that there is. Uh, <laughs> we're getting into kind of bizarre psychological territory here, but I think that if you know that you are being followed by cameras over a two-year period, or a two-month period, or even a two-minute period. By definition, your behaviour changes, doesn't it? If, if only by, if only because of the awareness that you've been watched. Yeah. yeah. And it, it must, it must be very hard to act naturally, or even to know what natural acting is when you're being followed. Now, whether that's being followed by someone you don't want following you, or followed by someone you do want following you, I, I don't know. I mean, and, and it makes me think sometimes that on the pitch, in all scenarios, players know they're being watched. Certainly, top-level players because they know there's cameras on. And so, how much of what they're doing is, is played up? Now, I think in the in the midst of to, to use a horrible cliche, you know, in the in the throes of the battle, perhaps they forget all of that. But I think there are some elements of what players do, and you know, I can think of lots of players who were always the first on the scene in celebrations, for example, to make sure that they were picked up on the cameras. Yeah, it was one of the things that always, Ferguson that always hated about Beckham. Yeah, I mean, that may be entirely unfair, but from the outside, it was tempting to sort of feel that. And so I don't know if anyone is natural when they know they're being watched. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Tell you what, if you watch, if you watch me 24 hours a day. <laughs> no, you get used to it. So, I mean, I think the first first few days would be pretty stilted. And then you'd uh, then you'd suddenly forget about it and, and go... I'd be, I'd be scratching my ass in front of people before you knew it, yeah. <laughs> Sid Lowe, British stuff. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Oh, I just can't wait for... No, is it November 9th, they said, Ken? I'm going to devour this Cristiano Ronaldo movie. Oh, first yeah. night at the first night it comes out. It's being made by, we mentioned this the other week, I think it's being made by uh, the same guy who made Senna and the Amy Winehouse documentary. Yeah, Did I he make that, that as well? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can even see by the trailer, the, the sort of, qual- we're not talking about a rinky-dink little uh, documentary here. This is pretty... Down the Phoenix Park on a Sunday morning, <laughs> kind of. It's pretty high... Documentary. Pretty yeah. high-quality stuff here. I, I'm pretty sure I remember you at the time, Ken, mentioning that about the... Yeah, top coming off and there being yeah. cameras and that, that rumour being around yeah, there was. even at that stage it was that corner of the pitch that he was but I, I don't think that would be that surprising it's not surprising uh, at all it's actually very similar to the reaction to the bladder stuff you're not surprised by any of it but it's still if, if, our, if the rumours are confirmed by this climactic yeah. scene in the movie you're like you're looking at it a certain way, maybe. Well, you know, well, I don't know though. Is it, is it necessarily? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that Ronaldo is playing in the Champions League final that his club desperately want to win, and he knows exactly where to celebrate when he scores his goal. But you know, he's not. It's not his. His. It's. It's his goals are are, are aligned with those of his club. It doesn't really matter then where he celebrates. Um, I know. I know what Murph means to even have this other notion in your head to be conscious of this other narrative. But that's how he thinks. He doesn't think about the team particularly. You know, he, t- he talks even in the clip about winning. He thinks about himself, and by extension, 
he plays so well that it does help the teams and everyone puts up with it. But, you know, he doesn't, you see when a teammate scores a goal, he'll knock, this has happened a load of times, where he misses a chance, it's mopped up by a teammate who knocks it in, and Ronaldo is fuming. He's fuming that he didn't score the goal. He doesn't care that somebody else scored. It's a, so it's all about him as it is, and that sort of narcissistic character, those characteristics, I think, are just always there. This is an extension of that, yeah. and it's a hilarious extension of it, but I could well believe, I could well see why it's the case. Oh, and, yeah. and also why it's not actually damaging to Real Madrid's chances yeah. in any way. Because I think if you have 11, if you have 11 guys thinking like that, that's obviously Oh, that's bad. an issue, yeah. If you have one guy thinking like that who's not the one of the greatest players of all time, that's a bad one. If the guy who's thinking like that happens to be scoring goals at a historic rate for the last six or seven years, it's actually, you know, that's pretty good then. You know, oh. that you, you're, as you say, Ken... Your, his goals are aligned with the goals of Real Madrid and yeah. if Ronaldo keeps scoring a goal a game for the next three years then Real Madrid are probably going to be doing alright. Well if Ronaldo wanted to um, create that image of him celebrating with his top off for a movie how is that ultimately any different in effect from doing it for its own sake? You know, I mean, if, or if, doing it for the cameras that are there anyway. Yeah, or the, just, just for the, the I wanna, I wanna, all the other I many cameras. Take that are there. I mean, he he's obviously like like Sid was saying. It's got, it's it's an interesting situation. You know, if you know you're being observed, that changes your behavior, right? I mean, it is, it is a, it, it's it's true. Although, how long does it last for? I mean, maybe there's there's a couple of ways of looking at it. I mean, number one, you could have. The, you could sort of internalize the idea that you're always being watched. Maybe Ronaldo's actually got to that point now. It's like so natural to him to be watched. He's, he knows it all the time. He, maybe he's aware of it without needing to be consciously aware of it, but still is. And I would compare that to say almost what, say somebody who used to sincerely, or somebody who sincerely believed in God, believed that they were being watched all the time. Because, you know, you're, he's all-knowing. And uh, every, everything that you do, you know, is being watched and judged by this outside sort of authority. So, like, if it, if that encourages you to sort of behave in the way, you know, to say keep to the Ten Commandments or something like that, you know, is that necessarily a, the, you know, you're doing it because you think, oh well, he's he'll see if I don't do this. <laughs> but does you know, is that does that then lessen the fact that you you see what I mean? I do. The other way of looking at it is like you know the way a kid is when you tell them Santa Claus is is watching them. And they, so they, they behave Danny well. Kids watch, uh, listening, by the way, of course, Santa is watching you all well, the time. Well, this is the thing. So the, the truth is, he can't actually watch everyone all the time. He, but he does check in. No, he checks in. He's, he checks in. He's so got people it's a random so check. It's like when the airport security screening, sometimes you just get taken aside for a random check. You're like, I don't even, I'm not even smuggling anything, you know? And, but they will, they will check I you hope randomly. That's what you say with the, you know, I'm not even smuggling anything. I'm not smuggling that's anything. definitely going to make them more suspicious. <laughs> but a kid, a kid is told, you know, you better you better watch out and all this, and uh, and they do for two minutes and then they totally forget about it and start running around doing behaving in their normal bad way. Yeah, and so I think maybe that's what actually people are mostly like when they when they've got a camera on them for a long time, they kind of forget it. It becomes it becomes normal. At least he knows the camera's on him as well. It's not like poor Jim Carrey in the Truman Show. I mean, that was just not right. No, that was that was. That was not right. Really it fair. was terrible what they did. <laughs> um, I don't know. But listen, I, I, I want to say just one final thing, which is thank you. To who? To both of you. For? For not, you know, mentioning that question. That I <laughs> <asked> you <laughs> oh, oh, what a question. 
Yeah, that went on for a long time. I actually watched the entire Cristiano Ronaldo trailer in that time. <laughs> yeah, you could have watched the entire Ronaldo documentary. And I also if it was loved, online, you could have watched. It. I loved how professionally Sid dealt with it. It was as though he'd been asked this really concise, <laughs> yeah. intelligent question. Uh, so Rafa Benitez is Sp- he's still, and now that he's in Spain, and he's talking the, Spanish. And I don't that, know where I'm going with this question. Yeah. Um, look, you know, I knew I knew what I was trying to ask. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just another you five can't seconds. Find the words. Simon would actually have just moved your fader down. <laughs> like you know. If you're a, Sp- a Spanish speaker on oh, no, here, there's no need to, <laughs> that's, that's no need to go through it all again. Oof, was painful just, he's a human being, you know, with a hinterland yeah, and a sort of yeah, a background. You know, yeah, you can right. you can hear in his voice and relate to, but you don't really have that when you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Our first show today is recorded. <laughs> is recorded. It's the Rugby World Cup final preview with Matt Williams and John Leonard is a former Dublin footballer, sub goalkeeper to Stephen Cluxon for a number of years. And he's written about a brilliant book about. That that whole idea of trying of doing all the work that everyone else does and never quite making it into the team, and also uh, he's a fairly insane life off the field, which is well worth having a listen to. He's really good when he came into us. That's called Dub Sub Confidential. That book, John Leonard is the uh, the, the author and the Dublin player. Murph, thank you. Thank you, there, Onzi. Thank you, Ken. Ken thanks thank very much, you, Karen. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. You can check us out on Twitter at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash Second Captains, and do rate us and comment uh, if you're listening on iTunes. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.